Hi everyone, I'm Emily and I'm an associate in the commercial technology team at Taylor Vinters and welcome to the final episode of season four of the Founders series. Our focus this episode is on how the benefits of digital innovation are at risk of being undone by digital threats. And to speak about this, we're joined today by James Chappell from Digital Shadows. James is the co-founder and chief innovation officer at Digital Shadows, a market leader in protecting businesses from digital risks. They identify organizations' unwanted exposure to risk and help protect against external threats. All in all, enabling businesses to go about their work and us to go about our lives without data being sold on the dark web, or mostly without. Um, so it's really great to be hearing from James today. So today we'll spend about 40 minutes talking with James about his background as a security architect, how he came to co-found and lead the team at Digital Shadows, and his top tips for businesses and individuals when it comes to cybersecurity. And as the founder series is all about the people behind the business, I wanted to start with some quick fire and hopefully not too taxing questions. Um, so first question, do you have a go-to podcast at the moment, um, which can of course be Shadow Talk, which is Digital Shadow's own podcast? Um, hi, hi, Emily. Uh, yeah, thanks for, thanks for inviting me along today. It's uh, great, to, great to speak to you and uh, really appreciate the opportunity. In terms of podcasts, uh, there's a there's a few. Obviously, Shadow Talk, which is Digital, Digital Shadow's own podcast, and I'm delighted to welcome uh, Taylor Vinters along to one of those in, in the in the past. I do listen to a lot of cybersecurity podcasts, and there's there's a gentleman called Patrick Gray who does a really good podcast. So it's very interesting. Now there's a, a lot of cybersecurity podcasts. Interestingly, it's beyond a, the Apple Store. It's quite a lot. So he he runs a podcast called risky business and it's one of my favorites it's well worth a listen and he i think what i like about it is he comes at it from a business perspective but then also sort of blends in the tech side so if you're a bit of a geek like me but enjoys enjoy business that's a really good one. Oh, brilliant yeah i've just started the darknet diaries ah yes series, which again very similar and it's very it's so good for the terminology behind it that i'm just starting to learn by osmosis because i'm not techy so that's a good way in for me Actually, there's. I'm gonna. I'm gonna break rules now and give you another one. Uh, so uh, there's. There's also the Lazarus heist. If you've been listening to that, uh, it's BBC. Uh, Jeff White is the journalist that runs that one. That's well worth a listen. It's done a in a sort of a narrative of the North Korean attacks. Uh, so it's a really, really interesting uh, story. If you like sort of stories, that's oh, a really brilliant. Good one to look at. Oh, that sounds great. Thank you. So second question is. Which app do you use most often and why? <laughs> my partner constantly takes the mickey out of me for having uh, too many apps on my phone. It's quite a hard one to answer this because I've actually got over the number of icons you can have on your screen. And I actually have to, <laughs> oh, have to search for them. Um, but probably, actually, some of the visual ones uh, I get a lot of use. There's the one I'm using called Picture This at the moment, which is... Uh, is great. I like some of the Google image search stuff where you can you can identify the object in the. Oh uh, yeah, mm -hmm. yeah, <laughs> probably those two at the moment. Brilliant. And are there any apps that you would avoid? So I know one for me was um, again the start of lockdown, which we won't talk about, but um, was House Party, which I think they discovered uh -huh. when you opened it, you put something like two hundred and twenty tracking cookies. All those trackers um, as soon as you opened it. So yeah, are there any perhaps like that that you you avoid? Well, they also then subsequently got hacked as well, didn't they? they did. So they which led, led to the end of that. Literally led to the end of their mm -hmm. business. So uh, yeah, it was quite a severe outcome for them. 
I don't, I don't know, so many to choose from. I mean, really, to be honest, I, I'd, I'd sort of look for some telltale signs in the app. So right. if it's free, you are the product. Don't be under any uh, understanding that you're not. Uh, so your data will be sort of monetized because that's how those apps work. You just need to understand the contract between you and the app's owner. That's that's the important mm-hmm. bit, isn't it? So just making sure you know what is being sold and why. So we, we do monitoring for mobile apps for our customers. And uh, what's really interesting is there are lots of impersonating apps. So you might be using something, and a lot of this happened around, sorry to mention the COVID word, but I'll do it. There we go. Too late. Um, so if you look at sort of things like the health apps, there are a lot of duplicate apps going online trying to convince you to pay for a vaccination or a, or a certificate of some description. I think that's just really low. I really think that's that sucks in a big way so yeah absolutely no way would I condone those apps and I I think knowing how unfortunately criminals profit from some of that stuff I think it's really bad that our industry has sort of for a long time sort of blamed the users for getting involved in a scam and I think that's wrong because actually scams now these days are so convincing that I mean there's ones that I'd fall you know I'd fall for if you know what I'm interested in that, that every, there's a phishing or an app campaign out there for almost anyone, and uh, it's not it's not because you're not intelligent. You just just happen to be either you're in a rush or you, you know, don't have the time to sort of properly consider something, and you, and you can unfortunately fall foul to these things. So, I believe the right thing to do is have spidey senses. If it doesn't, if something seems a little bit off, rely on that feeling. That's a really useful. Uh, indicator that you might want to sort of question what you're entering your data into or what you're downloading. That's a good a good top tip to live by. So now a little bit more work related. Um, what was your first job? Aside from paper round and, and supermarket mm-hmm. grocery seller, and then I worked in petrol stations for seven years. <laughs> Outside of that, I my first professional job I was working as in the telecoms industry. I was very fortunate to work with a large telecoms equipment manufacturer kind of about the same time the internet was becoming a thing so remember Netscape Navigator and the Lynx Mm -hmm. text browsers these kind of things so it was really interesting time to be alive because I kind of watched the internet sort of coming to be into being prior to that sort of data was used for uploading and downloading files and you started to see sort of the web really take hold so it was really interesting to watch the birth of things like sort of Google or Excite News or Yahoo, they go, that ages me, <laughs> and, and watch the things that are coming to be. I worked there from about 95 through to about 2001. I was lucky enough or unlucky enough to live through the dot-com boom and bust uh, in California, mm-hmm. so actually in, in, in uh, San Francisco. So really interesting first experience of the tech industry. That's good. That, that actually sort of links to my next question a little bit. Um, so you, I know that you've worked in both the UK and the US. Do you have a favourite between the two? I, I, think, I think I've chosen to settle in the UK. So mm-hmm. I, I think my, my, you know, my home feels like the UK. But the US... It gets a, gets a lot of flack from a lot of countries, but it, it truly is an amazing culture, really innovative, really beautiful as a country as well. I mean, if you if you like trekking or or like people don't realize how amazing the U.S. wilderness is. It just is phenomenal. Yeah. So I, I love America, but I, home is the U.K., I think is uh, probably the way I'd answer that. <laughs> 
that's a, that's a good safe answer. <laughs> that's a good one. So moving now to more about how you started out with Digital Shadows and your career in particular cybersecurity. So I know that you so you've now started well you've started your career in cybersecurity. How did you first get involved in that field? The telecoms manufacturer I was working at had a bunch of security projects going on in it. So when I finished in 2001, I was working on a few of those, in particular around sort of authentication in the sort of early version of the mobile internet, which was really interesting. And then in 2001, so the bubble burst in California, I uh, came back to the UK really in the middle of a recession. I was very fortunate to find a job with a technology consultancy called Detica, really interesting business. And they had a, a job going sort of like a pre-sales engineer stroke sort of development manager. And we built up a little sort of demo rig, sort of showing different technologies to customers and showing what this consultancy could do. And it was a really interesting role because you've got to do a lot of different, a lot of different things. About a quarter of the projects that I worked on were security related in some way. So they involved authentication or antivirus or involved um, sort of controls that you would use to secure data. Really, really interesting. I just sort of felt a natural, I was already a bit of a tech geek, sort of enjoyed technology. But then I found these projects in particular sort of very, very interesting when it came to things like cryptography or or authentication, there was some really interesting technologies out there. What really fascinated me about them was that security should be invisible. It shouldn't feel like you're being secured. And a lot of us have to deal with looking after lots of passwords today, right? I was intrigued by this idea is if you did it really well, you make it really sort of seamless for a user, then the world would be much better. And you can see all these attacks happening at the same time. And I just thought that was a really inspirational thing. And I landed up working for a mixture of public sector and commercial clients for them as a consultant. And I did that all the way through till about 2011. And a company called BAE Systems bought Detica, um, which, you know, they're, they're a very interesting organisation. But Al and I sort of decided it was time to uh, go off on our new adventures at that point and yeah, founded our, our company as we have it today. Fantastic. Yeah, I can 100% see how that could lead to, to Digital Shadows. So when you first started, what did you focus your time and resources on in those early stages? Al and I felt we had a business in us and we wanted to give it a, a proper go. If you put your mind back to uh, 2011, 2010, social media really taken off in a big way. And we were seeing security consultants go, oh, don't go near social media. That's really bad. And that's just not a very practical answer to living in a digital world because you know, it was also the new horizon, it's a new way of doing business. So we were like, well, well, these stuffy security consultants don't want to be, don't follow them. You actually want to be innovating. You want to be doing things differently, but obviously you want to do that that safely. So we came up with this idea, you've got a digital footprint, which is the thing you want to have online. That's a positive thing. It does positive things for your business. And the digital shadow, which is the things that are relevant to your risk. It was an interesting concept, and we still actually today sort of base it on, on that. But when we first started out, we were sort of essentially consulting. So you'd sort of go and find an organisation. You'd say, hey, you know, uh, we'll go and map out your digital footprint, and then we'll go and find out the risky bits of that, and then we'll write you some advice about how you can reduce that risk. And it would come out as a sort of a report, consume, and then 
take actions on and show that you'd progressed. And that worked really well. But what became almost immediately apparent was you wrote the report, you wrote the recommendations, and then something would change. So (laughs) a a competitor would come online, a a new Mm. brand would be there, your business would be acquired, or all kinds of things can happen to businesses and do all the time. So it's no good just sort of doing it as a point in time. So we very quickly realised we needed to make that service that would be something that's delivered uh, on an ongoing basis. And, And that's really what led to us creating Searchlights, which is the service we run today. So linked to that is one of your titles, is Chief Innovation Officer. Could you tell us a little bit about what the Chief Innovation Officer is and what the core focus of your role is now? I still am a founder for the business sort of first and foremost. And I think really I'm very interested in how we progress our service. I'm very fortunate to work with a brilliant team. So we've got our chief technology officer. I used to be our CTO and I, I passed that over to my colleague, Brian, who's uh, our chief technology officer today. And I think that's great because he leads our development teams. And I was more of a sort of solutions-focused CTO rather than a <laughs> development-focused CTO. So, um, so then I moved into sort of chief innovation officer. And I guess what I do in this role is I look at what, our market is doing. We'll look at what security specialists in similar roles to the ones that I'd done previously are doing and what they're interested in and try and help input into our product strategy and input into our development schemes or you know using that knowledge and that that insights. So that's that's primarily what the role is. Having said that, I kind of do a bit of everything because whatever needs doing is is what I what I do. So uh, I, at the moment I'm working in our customer success team and I'm uh, working on our support offerings. I think they're really interesting parts of our business. It's really great working with customers. You really get to a better sense of what they're interested in by working directly with them. So I, I really enjoy that. So you've already covered this a little bit in terms of Brian as your CTA, but who else makes up the Digital Shadows team? And how did you all come to work together? Some of us worked together previously. So with a lot of businesses, you learn to sort of create relationships and, and, and trust that you, you, you build over time. Quite a few of our team came over from our previous employer. So, for example, our very first developer is uh, Emily, um, and she's phenomenal. She's absolutely, uh, she's our, she heads up all of our engineering work and has you know, ran all the technology for the product from day one, from like t- turning it from spreadsheets into code. It was really quite a phenomenal how she coped with what we threw at her. And she really owned it from from day one. And for quite a while, we had an all female development team. It was uh, it was great, you know, really good, good for diversity. Unfortunately, we, we managed to dilute that with some men along the way. But um, it's uh, I would say they're very talented men. I will add, but uh, it, it was it's great to have a bit a bit more balance in that team. I've sort of been very fortunate to work with Brian, our CTO, since actually two thousand one when I first work with him. Maria uh, Mustakas, who's our chief revenue officer, comes from this phenomenal career at places like RSA, Mimecast. She brings a wealth of experience with her and she really has powered our growth. You know, she's really made an enormous difference. Uh, Rick Holland joined us from Forrester. Uh, he was an industry analyst for our area and uh, he was so interested, he he took a job with us, which was phenomenal so uh, that was really great and people like James Merrick who sort of runs our managed services and our partners some of our partnerships did a phenomenal job too so yeah I'm really blessed to work with some incredibly talented people they always say recruit people who are better than you I'm very glad to say we did so you've achieved that (laughs) 
<laughs> that sounds like a yeah, very, very strong team. Moving to sort of next set of questions and moving into a little bit more detail on what Digital Shadows does. I think it would be good to run through some of the terminology that would be helpful for people listening, people like me that have very limited knowledge of, um, of cybersecurity. So after you got started um, in the world of cybersecurity, uh, you began to focus specifically on digital footprints, um, as you said. So could you tell us just a little bit more about what a digital footprint is? And in particular, would you want to erase a digital shadow or a digital footprint altogether, or, or is there value in it? So a, a digital footprint is anywhere that you leave some trace of your interaction with the internet uh, online. And we all have a digital footprint. I think I'm very fortunate to be of a particular vintage where I grew up without a digital footprint in my early years, but I certainly have one now. And I think you look at sort of uh, young people growing up today, they've never known a world any different. They've grown up interacting with the internet pretty much from day one. Every, 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 even before they're born, you know, the ultrasound that goes onto Facebook. Um, it, it, yeah, we, all, we all definitely have one. And I don't think that's a bad thing. That's actually, it allows us to participate in a digital society. And there's nothing wrong with that. But there are implications. And that's really where my interest lies, is sort of working through those implications. You ask about deletion, there's actually quite a lot you can do to manage a digital footprint. So that can include things like removal of content based on trademarks or based on you know, terms of service that are being abused. Um, there are cases where you cannot remove content. So, for example, if a criminal gang has obtained your data and have published it on a, on a service that uses anonymity, it's very, very difficult to get that removed. But what you can do is uh, place it in some context and optimise how it's uh, seen online. And next question, which is potentially quite broad, <laughs> we'll try and get there, is what and where is the dark web? It's a really interesting term, isn't it? Also very newsworthy because it kind of encapsulates people's fear that there is a, a set of things which are secrets and clandestine and you should be really worried about it. I'll give you my definition of the dark web, and there are lots of different definitions. My definition of the dark web is anywhere on the internet where there's a sort of interest in sort of selling or transacting either personal information or extorting money. Ultimately, all cr criminality is about money. In, in some way or another, well, a lot of criminality is about money in one form or another. And for me, the dark web are the places on the internet where criminals might sort of hang out or, or interact with one another. And that is interesting to organisations. It's worth saying there are some very legitimate um, services which provide enhanced anonymity or enhanced privacy to individuals, right? And that includes you or I. Uh, if, you, if you're users of messaging app, you've got things like Signal, which keep your messages sort of uh, away from prying eyes. There's services such as the Invisible Internet Project, or there's a thing called the Onion Router or Tor, where you can publish content and it can't be traced back to you. So that's, that gives it anonymity. Or you can uh, browse the internet free from the host knowing who you are or where you came from. And that, that's a good thing, right? You, you, if you like privacy, if you like anonymity, that's a positive thing. It's also quite attractive to criminals because they're trying to evade the long arm of the law. And they also find those attractive policies of those services. It doesn't mean those services are bad, just in the same way that a telephone wouldn't be responsible for prank calls. It's the person making the prank calls that 
um, that should be blamed for that, not the telephone. So, um, it, yeah, it's really interesting. I, I think for some people, they kind of conflate privacy and anonymity enhancing tools with criminality, and that's really the wrong way to go. That you're using a remote VPN or something like that, it doesn't mean you're using it for bad purpose, it's just nope. your use for privacy. Fantastic. So last question to help us set up the terminology side of things is cyber resilience. So what does that mean to you? I think this is a really important concept. So uh, I think for a long time uh, in security, we're about building the castle walls higher and higher and trying to stop the bad people from sort of coming in and stealing the data. And that just doesn't work in the modern world. It's, 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 a, it's a flawed well, there's a, there's a concept called deperimeterization, which means that no longer really as effective a strategy as it used to be. I think the other thing is, is that uh, it's inevitable. You All organizations will have some kind of security event. It can be very small, like your antivirus going off. It can be quite big, like someone attempting to break in by trying lots of usernames and passwords. But it's guaranteed. If you're on the internet or you're using technology in some way, you need to think about uh, the security and you will have events, security events, not breaches, events that you need to pay attention to and take action on. Resilience, cyber resilience is all about, I've got these events, if one, if a negative thing happens to me, rather than just saying, trying to stop the negative thing from happening at all, you're paying attention to what's going on around you, having good situational awareness, and you're trying to respond. So for example, when that phishing email comes into your CEO's inbox, does he know how to respond? Does he know, oh, this looks a bit odd. I'll send it to this place. Mm-hmm. Then, then what happens, you might go and block it from being received by other employees, for example. That's an example of resilience. You're trying to, you're accepting there are events, but you're trying to bounce back from them and you're trying to become stronger and better in response to it. And I'd absolutely recommend all, all organisations consider cybersecurity not as preventing bad from happening, but more uh, obviously reducing the risk of that happening, but also responding, you know, re- responding and recovering from, from events. Yeah, I know um, our IT team do a test where every so often they'll send a fake phishing email. I just think it's one of the best things because, I mean, it's embarrassing if you click on it, but it's also no harm. It's embarrassing to you, but it's not actually an issue for anyone else. And it's a really good test of just, you tried it once, now you know, and then hopefully it won't happen again and just increasing that awareness as you go. I think it's really important that's collaborative, though, right? So mm-hmm. it, it, you don't want to sort of shame people into no, comments. not not publish that, that, your name and shame list yeah. at the end. So, so I think it's really important that um, it, it's a positive interaction with people when you're talking about security. So rather than wrapping people over the knuckles, sort of celebrating good behaviour and helping people think about other tools they have available to them to, to keep themselves secure. So now we've covered a good background on the terminology. I've now got a few questions about Digital Shadows services. So one of your key offerings, which we've already mentioned, is Searchlight. Could you give us a bit more of an overview of what Searchlight does? Sure. So uh, Searchlight is a technology that basically collects information uh, from the internet that's published online. We sift that down and turn it into a needle-rich haystack of, of risks that our, our, our customers are interested in. And then our analysts or our technology picks through that needle-rich haystack, picking out just the needles to help our customers to then take action on them. And we do that really in two ways. One, we look at our customers' brands and assets on, on, on the internet and look at things like breach passwords, or we look for manipulation of their brand, or we look for exposure of the technology. 
uh, sort of help them understand that. We also look at attacker behaviors, so the footprint that uh, attackers leave behind online and learn from that about how they're behaving so our customers are able to better secure themselves. So is there any emerging technology in this area that either you plan to use as part of Digital Shadows or that you'd recommend businesses use to help them better protect against those types of risks? So I guess, um, so we, we actually publish a guide that uh, would, we're very interested in digital risk and threat intelligence. And we, we do publish a guide that provides some free tools that uh, you can go ahead and use. So we have a, a document called the Practical Guide to Digital Risk, which is an interesting, you don't have to spend a penny. We've got loads of, loads of examples there of things you can do for absolutely for free uh, that you can go, go and try out. I think in terms of emerging technologies, I think there's a couple of interesting areas. One is looking at, sort of the borderless nature of digital business so we've been quite interested in there's a set of tools at the moment that help you understand how your organization is using other services online whereas we now live in this software as a service world understanding where your data is going to is really important so i think there's some really useful sort of technologies that can help with that i think authentication is another great area i think we're finally getting to a world where it's more than just usernames and passwords. There's there's a lot of passwordless technologies where it's the thing that you have that uh, helps you authenticate with a service. I think that's really exciting. Obviously, interesting privacy implications there as well, which you need to think through. I think also, also some of the services now are getting quite good. So I've been really interested in sort of endpoint detection and response and how that's evolving into a more joined up approach for managed security services. So instead of knitting together lots of, you used to have big companies would go out and buy lots of different solutions. Mm-hmm. I think we're beginning to get better at being able to acquire services that join that all up for you. You have one relationship with that supplier who then provides the technology. And I think that's a, I think that's a really important shift in our industry because it's not very practical for businesses to just join up lots of different technologies. They really need to go to one place for all of that. I suppose it helps as well to close any gaps that if you're working with lots of different providers, they don't know who's supporting you elsewhere. Whereas if you've got visibility on both sides, that I imagine really helps. I've got a um, general interest question. So I saw that you recently, or actually not so recently, but expressions a while ago, (laughs) recently commented, on the Poly Network hack, where a hacker stole and then returned, I think it was about $600 million worth crypto coins from Poly Network. Now their justification for that was that it was the only way to highlight the bug without risking that someone with bad intentions would utilize that gap. What are your views, judge my expressions, um, not that good. What are your views on that type of hacking? Um, and is that ethical? Well, it's not lawful. So no. Did it highlight the issue? Yes, it did. That was an example of a distributed finance platform. So this isn't a cryptocurrency itself. It's more a, a platform for moving currency between one coin and another. It was a really interesting one. I think it was sensationalism. I do think it brought attention to the issue. I don't believe all the funds were returned, so it's still theft. It's another another key part, yeah. So theft is illegal, uh, so or not lawful. You probably tell me the correct terminology, but uh, it, yeah. So I, I don't, yeah. I, I think the right thing to do is um, is to work with the security teams on those projects and, and not sort of just publish it out and about. There's, there's a really big problem with a thing called. Uh, we call it beg bounty. So if you if you run a website or a, a business, you're going to get lots of emails from uh, people going, oh, hello, I found a vulnerability in a website. 
are you going to pay me some money? And uh, uh, mm -hmm. so it's, it's been labelled beg bounty uh, now uh, okay. in, in our industry. And uh, yeah, I don't think that's particularly ethical either. There's plenty of really good professional frameworks for, for doing that sort of thing under proper bug bounty programs that people will benefit from more. And then actually professional, there's a really great set of professional uh, careers out there. We need good professional cybersecurity professionals badly we're so short of resources go go get a job <laughs> don't yeah. don't go around extorting money out of people it's not fun yeah my um my partner was involved well not involved in that sounds terrible um worked as an ethical hacker employed by a company to do it and um yeah knowing the amount of security clearances you had to go through to do that the um non-ethical hacking is, is clearly not a, a good option to take. Do you have a go-to example of a hack that should convince businesses to prioritise cybersecurity before something goes wrong? Um, I think probably ransomware is the thing right now, which mm -hmm. is rightly occupying the mind of a lot of security professionals. And in particular, um, I mean, I'll just pick one group at random, but uh, Conti is particularly active right now. So they're an example of a Russophone uh, organized crime group. Uh, so the way those work, their pay will get breached. So what they will do is they will they'll find a, a vulnerable computer somewhere on the network of a victim. Um, they'll exploit a weakness in that computer and then they will acquire as much data as they physically can. And they will also deploy some sort of uh, a computer program to lock up the network. By the time the actual action has happened they've got all your data they then hit a button lock up all your computers and then send you a ransom note saying hey uh you know pay us some money if you want your data back and don't want to appear on the news and they do this a lot they uh, do it a tremendous amount and what's really interesting about these attacks is they tend to be very opportunistic in nature so it's not that you are vulnerable to a really i mean they do have some more advanced techniques than we saw maybe sort of five, six years ago. But mm -hmm. the stuff they're exploiting are things like vulnerable remote access computers or VPNs. It's not stuff that, if you have a security program, it's the sort of stuff you can patch and you can manage and it's okay. all achievable. And I think, I think there's a big problem in our industry sort of going, oh, this stuff's just too hard. We'll just hope that we won't get hacked. Don't do that. Have a proactive approach patch your systems, have strong authentication. It's a really good thing to focus on. It's no coincidence that the UK National Cybersecurity Centre is making one of its top risks right now, ransomware. Mm -hmm. And they're working really hard to educate businesses, you know, how to sort of properly defend against it. So um, please you know, go check them out. They, they've got a really good set of resources to, to help them. Yeah, that's brilliant that they are, they're, they're tackling it, but not good that they have to tackle it as such, that it is such an issue at the moment. So that's businesses, but in terms of individuals and maybe even people listening, what can individuals do to protect their data online? Um, so that could be personal brand, financial data, other information. Are there any top tips that you've got for individuals? I guess from a personal perspective, uh, you know, do use uh, different passwords for different services. There's 25 billion passwords routinely shared online by hackers, and they will reuse those at every opportunity. So using something like a password manager can make a big difference. If you have an opportunity to use the second factor for authentication, even if it is an SMS, and I know it's not perfect, but it does make quite a big difference having text messages. There's also little things like authenticator apps where you, you've got a set of uh, you know usernames and passwords, sorry, you've got a set of uh, digits that you can add to a password on your phone that you can 
uh, add. So using the second factor is a really good way of uh, use those opportunities when they come up. I think separating your risks according to the most vulnerabilities. So treating your bank account different from, say, your gym membership. Definitely think about okay. that and mm-hmm. uh, sort of prioritize your security first and foremost on the things that affect your your sort of wealth, maybe. And then sort of think about what you're posting online before you post it. But also don't not post online. I think that's that's really important to participate. Claim your identity. So a lot of people go, well, I, I'm not going to I'm going to avoid the risk by not having an online identity. Well, what's happening now is people are claiming that identity for you and mm. uh, then impersonating mm-hmm. you. And that does happen. And that gets quite difficult uh, when that happens. So yeah, bear that in mind, too. Oh, that's a good one. Yeah, that I hadn't hadn't thought of before. And yeah, someone who's just started using Password Manager, I was definitely guilty of that, of um, reusing passwords. So since becoming more involved in data protection law, that has now changed, luckily. Perfectly normal, though. And yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. I, I think I think the more the more you use those sorts of tools, the lower your risk will become. So yeah, it does make a big difference. So the penultimate question for me, um, which is possibly quite a big one, is what is the long-term vision for digital shadows? I, I think digital footprints and digital shadows will continue to be our strategy. And I, I think uh, we continue to invest in that. But there's some really interesting things going on at the moment um, around vulnerability intelligence. So looking at how the techniques that attackers use to break into computers are evolving. And actually, if we can keep step with those developments and tell our customers about them as they happen, I think there's some really exciting um, opportunities around that. I think sources continue to diversify. So we're looking at sort of new platforms to add to our coverage, which are really interesting. Criminals will continue to innovate. So uh, we'll continue to innovate uh, ahead of them and uh, make sure that we're keeping a step and you know hopefully one step ahead of where they're heading. I think growth-wise, you know, we're it's amazing to work with a brilliant team that we have today globally. Um, how we fit into the ecosystem of all the other cybersecurity tools is really important. And I talked about using managed partners or, or services. I think sort of how we fit into those services is really important um, going forward. So we're thinking quite hard about how we provide joined up services to customers as part of their overall security strategy. So there's, I think there's some really exciting things going on in that space right now. Um, so my final question is, what advice would you give to other founders or, or co-founders who want to have a positive impact? People are everything, <laughs> I think. Uh, and I, I think that those people can be your employees. So you know, I, I say I'm really privileged to work with some brilliant people. And I, I think a lot of our success is down to those people. So don't ever undervalue the, the, the people that you have in your business. And I'm sure, sure most founders wouldn't. Those people are also your customers. And I think building partnerships rather than sort of client vendor relationships is really important. So you're you're part of their team. You're part of building a culture with your customers. It's, it's so, so important. I think that also goes to your um, suppliers as well, right? So building partnerships with people who help you along the way is, is really important. So I, I think, you know, at the heart of, everything we do is is are the brilliant people that we interact with every day and my number one bit of advice is make the most of that um that's what will make you successful that's a lovely answer that's really good um so yeah i think we can turn to the chat now so we've got this first one from kieran who's in our social ventures team at tv is it a good thing that newspapers talk about cybersecurity threats or is there a risk of journalists communicating misinformation 
Uh, yes and no is the answer to that. So uh, yes, it's good that they raise awareness. Um, I think there are some published information which is sort of sensationalizes the threat a little bit, it's like use of this term dark web. Um, I wouldn't want people not to be aware, but I, I, I also would like accuracy is quite important. And it's it's sometimes quite a detailed topic. And on occasion, journalists can gloss over the detail, which is sometimes quite important to what's going on. Yeah, it's about so we, essentially I, I try and talk to the journalists who I know have got a bit of experience and sort of report well on these topics um, and try and perpetuate that. Yeah, I guess even me paraphrasing the poly network case can make the hacker come across as quite good, whereas actually everything about it was wrong. <laughs> That's actually quite an involved case. And, you know, mm -hmm. it's, it's not easy for people to understand. I think you highlighted the ethical bit of that, which was really important. And uh, yeah, I don't, I, don't, I don't think there was anything wrong in your perception of it at all. No, just in terms of the, um, the journalist evaluation of it was... No, this looks no. ethical when it was not. Yeah, no, absolutely not. Um, so the other question we've got on the chat um, is from anon Anonymous Attendee, um, which is, how do you encourage the culture of innovation within digital shadows? Yeah, so it's really important ones. So we have things like, uh, uh, so I actually work with our engineering team and our CTO uh, on this. So we have things like hack days where our engineering team can sort of bring up an idea and um, uh, just work on that. For We have a basically... Uh, two or three days where uh, they start with ideas at the beginning of the, the, the process and at the end they built a sort of proof of concept for a particular idea and it's really interesting because like as you're the, usually the product process is quite st structured so you've got lots of things like competitors you've got uh, customers you've got uh, internal debates sort of driving your product roadmap and there's always a very structured plan for delivering it so it's good to step outside of that every once in a while and, and give people the freedom to sort of make suggestions. I think the other thing is we run a product process where uh, anybody can suggest an idea at any time. It goes into a hopper and then we have a system of grading those ideas based on market and uh, opportunity. We also encourage anybody in the company to be able to submit one of those ideas. You don't have to have a particular set of qualifications. You can just make the idea, submit, uh, submit that. We also ask our customers directly to help us understand what they want to do and uh yeah we have a customer advisory board there as well so yeah i think just being sort of generally open to ideas is the the main thing yeah just all angles is um yeah good approach so we've got a question here which i i really like is um which dig digital risks do you identify for your customers that tend to concern them the most so we detect documents that are accidentally leaked on the internet and you can you can actually experiment for yourself using Google. So you can type type into Google confidential, not for distribution, file type colon PDF, and you will get a lot of PDF files with the word confidential in them. And it's surprising the number of those. There's a guy called Johnny Long wrote a book called Google Hacking, which was all about how you run sort of searches to find sort of interesting information on the internet. Unfortunately, due to the increase of technology, there's the number of places that documents can show up accidentally has increased massively and probably the one the things we find that are most surprising for customers is where the types of documents we can find just littered around the internet where it's just accident and misadventure it's not malicious it's just someone accidentally misconfiguring a device and then you know 
leaving leaving something online. Another question we've got on the chat is, as founder, what were the biggest challenges you faced when starting up Digital Shadows? Paying ourselves. <laughs> that was interesting for a few years. I ate a lot of beans. Yeah, I, I think sort of the biggest challenges are just getting to the minimum viable product, MVP. That's mm-hmm. took us a couple of years, if we're honest. We validated the idea to the extent we knew it was right, but trying to get to MVP and revenue was a, was a tough battle. Uh, but we got there and then the revenue comes in and, and it proves itself. The other big one was entering a new entering the US market. That was really interesting, especially it's the most com- it's the biggest market for cybersecurity services. But it's also the most competitive, and you're vying for the ear of people who are exceptionally busy and really don't have a lot of time to talk to providers. They just just need an answer now in a very brief period of time. And going from you know d- digital, who the heck are you to digital shadows in the US was was a uh, probably a journey of about three three years uh, or more and um, you know I'm very very pleased we've sort of invested a lot of time and effort in making that happen and it's now now our largest market but it's uh, it, it to say it was uh, wasn't challenging would not be true okay yeah just trying to persuade people of the value of being proactive not reactive when absolutely they always have to be reactive I imagine there's um very hard so actually that links to another question we've got in the chat which i think we've covered the first part but might have more to add is does the u.s cybersecurity market differ from the uk's um but the second part of that we haven't covered at all which is would you say those markets have changed at all over the years uh so yes the u.s market is different from the uk in that they tend to adopt uh, slightly earlier i think uk likes to see a bit more evidence first before they adopt although having said that there are some very innovative companies in the uk which are up that trend uh, certainly i think uh, in terms of it, it is different uh, probably just in terms of the amount of noise that there is out there so it, you know, there's a lot of venture capital looking for a home uh, in the us and that means there's a there was thousands upon thousands of venture-backed cybersecurity companies about five years ago. There's a lot less now because of the nature of venture capital. Some will be successful, some won't. I'm glad to say we, we've sort of we, we've grown and established ourselves in that time, but you've got a lot of noise to shout above, and that, that's really quite challenging. So, yeah, it's uh, you know, I'm glad, glad to say we're through that now, but that's yeah. probably the biggest difference. Is that, the battle to get in there first. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And one question we had, um, which I actually submitted, before um is in your opinion what has been the most noteworthy change for digital shadows since covid restrictions started easing it's been brilliant to see people again i'm actually sat in our office which is oh actually in your office i'm very used to your background now i just assume you're always at home no no i'm I'm actually in our in our in our office today and it's been great we've had all of our um uh, analysts coming together and catching up so that's just been like a breath of fresh air to be able to do that again I think the sort of positive, this idea of hybrid working is really good. Our our development teams are probably more productive than they've ever been. Working in a more hybrid environment, I think that's been very positive. Yeah, the nature of work has completely changed. I quite like it uh, myself, but it's not for everyone. And I think trying to cater for different approaches is, is important. I think also trying to find the opportunities to meet up with customers we haven't had to rethink how we do that, and as a lot of businesses are. The hybrid conference is sort of, it'll be interesting to see if that stays around. Um, and then to end on one 
which isn't COVID related because we cannot end on that, um, is, is the purpose of Shadow Talk, um, so this podcast, to educate the general public or is it geared more towards people who already have an interest in threat, threat intelligence? Uh, we try and do a mix of both. Um, so if you want to get a sense of what's going on in the world, um, it's it, it's sort of a up-to-the-minute synopsis of some of the recent attacks. And we try and make it useful for folks who aren't perhaps technology first uh, in this area. So um, I mean, let us know. If you think if you think we need to make it more accessible, tell us, because I, 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 we certainly try and do that. We also do have some fairly deep dives on different actors and techniques. Some of those can get, get a bit technical, but we try and offer a range. So uh, you'll find we'll sort of alter the content one week to, to the next. Yeah, as I said, started listening to Starnet Diaries, so definitely looking for more now that help with just that background terminology and getting, I think once you get your head past that, it just opens up that understanding that it all, all starts to make sense, which oh. as, a, as a user is, is helpful. I'll give Jeff White and Lazarus Heist another plug then, because yeah, that, I, I think that's a really accessible podcast. I really like that. It's a really nicely put together podcast, that one. Brilliant. And then um, one practical we, practical one we had, which um, James Boyle mentioned earlier, which plays outside TV, um, is our um, head of the data protection team. Um, he asked the fascinating question of, do you have a favorite password manager? <laughs> Well, should I reveal what I use is the question. True, um, that is, yeah. <laughs> uh, yes, I, I, I do. Um, I would say, uh, so I, I'm a fan of, I, I quite like Dashlane. I quite like 1Password as well. That's quite a good one if you're on a Mac. We've used LastPass in the past. That's pretty good. Um, yeah, I, I think, to be honest, that the, the UI on a lot of them is pretty good. But uh, yeah, I... I Personal favourite, I'll probably like one password that's quite, okay. quite nicely put together. And you sufficiently mentioned enough that we're not entirely sure what you use. So let's say. <laughs> there we go. Brilliant. So I think that's all our questions from the chat. So we can we can wrap up now. So thank you so much, James, for joining today. I certainly learned a huge amount and will now continue to learn a huge amount. And so I hope that everyone watching um, did too. Thank you also to everyone watching and for all of your questions. James, before we end, is there anything that you'd like to mention or plug before we wrap up? Always just think about your organisation from an attacker's perspective. I think that's a really worthwhile thing to do. Try try to focus on security in a positive way. That's always a, the right thing to do for businesses. Don't, don't sort of be scared. Actually engage and have a conversation about security in your organisation. That will always lead to a better outcome. So, um, yeah, and if, if you're interested in particular research or ideas, we have lots and lots of content on our website, www.digitalshadows.com or Digital Shadows on Twitter. Come and subscribe. I'm sure we'll have some content that will be interesting to you as you go forward. Amazing. Thank you. So this is the last episode um, of the season, but you can catch up on episodes one and two, where we interview Dr. Deirdre O'Neill from Hotility and Rick Mower from Raw. Um, you can find those interviews and also there'll be a recording of today's interview up there and you can go to taylorvinters.com forward slash the founders series to see those. Please also do get in touch with us if you know of any founders who are using tech in exciting or innovative ways. Um, as we'd really love to hear from them, um, either in this format or, or any others. So thank you so much again, James, for taking part. And thank you all for listening. It's a pleasure. Thanks very much, Emily. Thank you. Bye, everyone.